Okay, good evening everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. I am very excited to be back with you here this evening. Um, I've been uh, on the road in the absolutely frigid cold up here. I picked a, a poor week to go visit the uh, the White Mountains up in the north of New Hampshire. It was really cold last week. Uh, but that's okay. We did great, and we're home now. And, um, and you'll remember I'm going to be gone again next week. I'm going where it is slightly warmer, down in Texas next week. Um, but... Uh, uh, but I'm glad to be back with you this week, especially since this week is officially our anniversary of exploring the Lord of the Rings. It was one year ago tomorrow, uh, which of course tomorrow is Tolkien's birthday. So we started, we began this on Tolkien's birthday, which fell on a Tuesday last year. Uh, so we're now one year in officially uh, to exploring the Lord of the Rings, and we've gotten not quite to breathe. <laughs> well, okay. So uh, to be perfectly honest with you, I have the whole rest of Chapter Eight ready in slides tonight, just in case we get really feisty and get all the way through. But I'm not really assuming that that's going to actually happen. But anyway. We should make it. Uh, if we if we if we make it back to the road, you know, I think we'll be making good progress here tonight. Um, but this has been such a such a fun thing. I've been, you know, I, I told you guys before that I was. Um, I just started a reread of the books, just kind of reading through the Lord of the Rings at speed, and and uh, it was really fun reading in one sitting, essentially what we had studied together for over the course of almost the entire year last year, and uh, it's just really neat remembering all those things. But of course, what I absolutely love most about um, going through at the very slow pace that we've been doing is you don't. Sorry, I almost forgot to go live on Twitter. Um, is that you don't you don't miss anything, you don't skip anything. Like it's so it's so easy when you're reading through. Just like whole paragraphs will kind of go by that you don't really notice or don't really stop to think about, or there might be some sentences, some paragraphs, some things that just you don't really fully get, and you just kind of skip. You know, just kind of uh, uh, you know, just keep going and leave it behind. Um, and I love how you guys are not letting me leave anything behind. We're, we're, we're leaving no questions unanswered. Of course, not to say that we have all the answers to all the questions, but we're certainly leaving no question unconsidered as we go through, uh, the text here. So that's been, uh, that's been really great. Um, so, uh, anyway, yeah. So, so this year we made it almost to Brie, Maybe next year we'll 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 celebrate our second anniversary in Rivendell. That would be good. I think we can probably make it to Rivendell in another year, uh, and then uh, what? <laughs> probably Holland the year after. Maybe Moria the year after that. Uh, possibly Lothlorien. I don't even know. But um, anyway, uh, so uh, uh, it's been um, it's been great to uh, uh, hang out with you guys and do this, so I'm looking forward to a second year. I don't even know how many years we're on pace to take for this, but as you can see, you know, between this and the film film project and everything, um, I'm kind of... um I'm kind of in this for the long haul, as far as uh, uh, as far as this kind of thing is concerned. Um, it's one thing having been doing the podcast now for more than ten years. Um, you know, I remember some people saying 
you know, when I was three, four years into the podcast, like, aren't you going to run out of stuff to talk about eventually? I mean, you know, he's not writing any more stuff, right? Which is kind of true and kind of not true in a sense, as it turned out. But, um, uh, but anyway, I was, uh, you know, I, I never, I've never worried about that, and this is chiefly why I love this kind of long-term project and the ability, the freedom, uh, to be able to do that. This is something I have always, always, always wanted to do, to go through, really line by line through the whole Lord of the Rings. There's no circumstances other than this one in which I've ever gotten the chance to do anything even vaguely like this. The most slow and luxurious treatment in a class, you know, a classroom setting that I've ever done has been a ridiculous rush um, uh, compared to this. So it's just great. Again, I, there are so many things that I've been learning. Uh, it was such a rich experience rereading the book after, uh, you know, rereading those first seven chapters after discussing them together. So um, anyway, I. Uh, I'm, I've been, I've been, uh, I've been really enjoying this. So let's, um, let's, let's head off into our second of who knows how many years and, uh, uh, and, uh, continue with this. Now, a couple quick announcements before we begin. So we've got a couple important things, uh, to remind you guys of two things that are coming up fairly quickly, actually, at the end of this week, um, that I wanted to make sure that you guys remember about first, um, our uh, spring semester is starting this coming week. So uh, if you haven't gotten a chance to look at the, uh, the, the, the courses that we're offering in our graduate program this semester, our spring semester uh, courses starting up, um, my Chaucer class and uh, a bunch of other uh, classes, which are going to be which are going to be really great. Um, uh, so go ahead and, and check that out. Go to signumuniversity.org. Uh, that is, you know, this web page here, signumuniversity.org, uh, and you can go to our uh, future courses page and see the list here. Yeah, it's my Canterbury Tales class. I keep referring to this one. Uh, I keep. Uh, 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 sort of puffing this course in my Douglas Adams class in the Hitchhiker's Guide uh, uh, discussion we're having on Wednesday nights. Um, my Tolkien's poetry class. Yeah, the one where we invert it and and skip all the prose and only read the poems. Uh, anyway, so that's uh, uh, th- these, these, these classes. And then, of course, Tom Shippey and uh, Nelson's Beowulf through Tolkien class. Just, uh, just awesome, awesome stuff. Um, so I encourage you to look into these. Again, these start on Monday, so this is the last week of registration without missing anything. It's still possible to sign up after they begin, you know, for a week or two, but, um, but obviously if you want to sign up. And so if you're interested in auditing classes, of course, you know, you can enroll in the program, but people who want to sit in on the courses and just kind of, you know, uh, uh, be able to participate without credit and stuff, there's a lot of opportunities for that. So uh, just wanted to encourage you uh, to check that out. The other thing that I wanted to draw to your attention is MythMoot. MythMoot 5, Fantastic Frontiers, is coming up soon. Now, we are now, now that the calendar is rolled over to 2018, we are officially um, uh, now counting down towards MythMoot. We've turned the corner and are in the backstretch now. June 21st to, uh, to June 24th of this year uh, for... Um, for MythMoot. So, but the important thing, the deadline that's coming up very soon is uh, we have early bird pricing for people who register for the conference early and the early bird pricing ends on the 7th of January. So that ends what that's this Sunday, right? So, um, uh, so just through this week is the last chance to get the, uh, the early bird registration price uh, for MythMoot 5. 
Um, as you see, we've got awesome guests: John Garth, author of Tolkien and the Great War; Douglas Anderson, uh, just two of the two of the greatest Tolkien scholars alive today. Um, both of them really, really great uh, to hear. It'll be wonderful to meet the both of them. Um, I mean, I've been fortunate enough to meet them both before, but you'll get a chance to meet them if you come. And uh, Mark Ockrand, the the inventor of the Klingon language, is coming, and he's going to talk about uh, invented languages and uh, do some Klingon instruction with us and everything, so I'm very excited about that. So, um, anyway, that's... Um, um, that's coming up, as I said, in June, early bird registration. I would draw your attention also to the call for papers down here if you want to present something uh, at Mythmoot. Lots of opportunities in many of the, the, the discussions that we've had and the, the debates that have arisen uh, in the Fellowship of the Ring so far. Lots of material for uh, presentations, I would say, um, which, uh, which you guys could take up, I hope. So, anyway... Those two things are the main things that I wanted to emphasize. Of course, we have TextMoot coming up. Registration technically closed for that, though we might be able to sneak you in if you show up. But anyway, uh, it's going to be awesome. We've got more than said. We got like eighty people coming to TextMoot, so uh, I am uh, I am I am super excited uh, to get down there to Texas next week. Um, and so again, reminder: I won't be here next week. Um, we'll have next week off again for all of my classes because I'll be down in be down in Texas next week. So. All right, let us then, okay, let us go to slide one. So, title of the class tonight is Recovery. Um, And of course, I mean this in a double sense. On the one hand, of course, in the simplest sense, Sam and Mary and Pippin and Frodo are all recovering from their experience uh, in in the Barrow. And we will see Tom Bombadil actively helping them to recover from their experience. But, of course, the word recovery uh, in a Tolkien context has an, uh, always sort of comes with this extra weight, right? Um, because recovery is one of those words that Tolkien used to describe um, the the effect <clears throat> of fairy stories. It's one of the things uh, that, that sort of fantasy literature is good for, according to Tolkien, is recovery. Um, and he used that word in part as a metaphor, you know, using as a metaphor the kind of recovery that the hobbits are doing, that is getting better when you've been sick, right? But of course he means it in different ways. And I think the the, the Tolkienian recovery that he talks about in On Fairy Stories, namely being able to see things with fresh eyes again, to wipe away the the the, the trite mundaneness and familiarity of things and to recapture the wonder of the world around you. Um, that's essentially what, what he describes when he talks about the process of recovery in which he thinks that uh, that fairy tales and fantasy uh, so are so important uh, in helping people to do. And I, I think that we'll see actually some elements of that too as the hobbits themselves are recovering. I think that we see some really interesting elements of that kind of uh, that kind of deeper recovery as well. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. Um, so let's jump into it. Two notes and queries tonight from the discussion board. Lots of great posts on the discussion board. I couldn't talk about all of them. Um, two that I wanted to, to come back to, two Barrow White related uh, posts. First, about Frodo's recollection of... Um, uh, uh, of Tom Bombadil and his calling for Tom Bombadil. This by I for detail, and I gotta admit, I stared at that 
login name for an embarrassing amount of time before I figured out what it was, in part because I couldn't figure out if the first letter was an I or an L. But, uh, but anyway, it, it was a while before it finally clicked, and I was like, oh, yeah, right, uh, okay. Anyway, uh, he says, There's, uh, there was some discussion about why it was only after Frodo touched Mary's face that he remembered Tom. I suggested, right, that it was the urgency of the the fear for his friends, but rejected that option. The hewing of the hand was a much more popular idea, uh, but I'm not sure I agree with that. It wasn't when the hand was hewn that Frodo remembered. It was when he touched Mary. Remember if the hand was being cut... uh, If it was the hand being cut or broken off, the remembering should have come at that moment, or if the spell is unraveling slowly. The remembering of the outside world, i.e. Tom, should not be so closely linked with the action of touching Mary if it was the cutting off of the hand. I would like to suggest that in the pla- in this place of death, in this ceremonial, and soon we can only assume quite too literal, burial, that the spell is not broken with the breaking of the hand, but with Frodo coming into contact with living flesh. This whole thing is, as we have discussed, theatrics. It is ritual and Frodo has been under the White's enchantment ever since he woke up in the White's Barrow, if not before then. And what is that enchantment? It is ritualized death. I would propose that the contact with Mary's face cracks the facade of the death ritual for Frodo, if only enough to remember... if only enough for him to remember life, to remember Tom. I really like this point. Um, I agree that it is important for us to recall that it is with the 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 touch. I mean, I, I, I think that I for detail is exactly correct here, that the fact is his his recollection of Tom does not coincide with the breaking of the hand, as if the breaking of the hand alone snaps the spell and he comes to his senses as soon as, you know, the the, the power of the white over him, uh, possibly symbolized by the hand as we've been describing, um, was was broken off. Um, so I think that that's right. Now, I still think that that breaking of the hand is a really important symbolic moment, especially given the, the sort of symbolic weight that hands have been given right throughout the songs and things that we've seen so far. Um, so that, that all, you know, uh, I, I still think that that's all really important, but I am definitely willing to grant this. And I think that this touch with living flesh, the other thing, um, that I recall, that this makes me think of. I mean, the other kind of other supporting thing that I would point out. Remember the view that he has of the three of them in that greenish light that emerges from him, right? And it's so interesting that the light seems to be emanating from Frodo himself, right? He is glowing in the dark in this sickly green light, which again feeds into the way that Eifer Detail is here describing the, the, the ritual, right? Like he himself is not only the, the bringer of, but is himself deathly. Like that deathly, that corpse light is coming from Frodo himself. So he is being encouraged to think of himself as already dead, already a part of this deathly world that he's in, right? And they, his three friends, do look already dead. And you'll remember when the light comes, when Tom Bombadil breaks in the wall and the um uh the, the the morning sun streams in now they look all of a sudden only deeply asleep instead of dead right so um that again that contact with the living flesh that recollection that reminder um that he's not dead they're not dead um and because remember that is you know Alfred Detail is right that is the that is the uh the content of the white's incantation 
right? Um, the thing that he's enchanting them to is to enchant them into um, death, deadliness, right? And deathliness. I'm not even sure because it's not just about killing them, right? It's 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 a more profound kind of conversion to death, right? Than that is. Um, so anyway, I think that that's. Uh, uh, that that's a really interesting point. So now it's not that I. Th- I mean, I wouldn't go so far as to say that it's the like by touching his face, like the spell breaks at that point. But again, I like the way that Eifer Detail described that. It's as if like that's when the cracks formed, right? And the memory of Tom Tom Bombadil uh, squeaks. And again, I would add, I think the the snapping off of the hand immediately prior to that has a has an impact on that too, right? Um, that it's quite likely the two things together that seem to me to uh, um, to kind of come together, right? Um, anyway, so I thought that was a I, I thought that was a really great discussion. Thanks for that. And uh, more on Mary's memory. This was, of course, really the centerpiece of our discussion two weeks ago or in our last session um, with uh, Mary's memory of the um, uh, the attack of the men of Karndum. Uh, with its attendant implications for the nature of Barrow Whites, right, as uh, as we talked about. Um, so, uh, Croker, who is making his first uh, comment and who said he's finally caught up with us now, uh, which is great, so I think he's going to be, I don't know if he's, a, if he's able to be here live today, but, uh, um, uh, but anyway, thanks for joining us and catching up with us here. He says, I like the idea of Mary dreaming of an event that is ultimately subverted on the Pelinar fields, as I was suggesting last time. However, let's consider what Mary's dream actually produces in Mary. Horror. This horror faded out of their hearts as they looked at him, Tom, and saw the Mary glint in his eyes. It's a horrifying dream, and certainly brings home the horrors of medieval combat in a frank and sobering way we don't often see in Tolkien. This doesn't suggest a dream coming from outside the barrow, but from inside the barrow. I'm thinking of how vampire spirits are handled in Buffy the Vampire Slayer. In that subcreation, when a human is made into a vampire, the human dies and the human spirit passes on, and then a demonic spirit animates the body but retains the memories of the body. Is there a medieval precedent of this idea? And, Croker, I can't think of one like that. I mean, I, I, I know what you're talking about. Um with the with the, the way that that works in the buffy world and that kind of that kind of hybrid situation right where it is a spirit coming in from outside it's not just the soul of the person who sticks around and yet it does have the memories of the body as well um you're right, that 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 is a really great example of um you know one sort of subcreation which sort of has it both ways, right? Um, and so is therefore an interesting precedent to think about the, the Barrowites in that in that kind of possibility. No, I can't think of a medieval precedent for this. Um, demons, like demon activity, it doesn't generally work like that. I mean, it's usually about, if, if a demon is... I'm trying to think of examples of demons occupying dead people. Demons, in the Middle Ages, demons don't show much interest in dead folks. Um, they're mostly interested in living folks. I mean, they're interested in the souls of dead folks, of course. Um, but less so in the bodies of dead folks. Yeah. And I mean, even if you think about... Um, if you think about... 
sort of vampire legends, those are still the original souls, generally. Those are still the original souls of the people. So, you know, like Vlad Dracul and everything, it's it's him. Like, it's, it's you know, his soul, which is uh, sort of in torment there in his body. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, JJ is wondering why would they be interested in the human soul after death once a man's soul has departed and is beyond further corruption? What would a demon want with them? Um, the, the playthings, chiefly. I mean, it's the demons get to... Um, get to torment in various ways the souls of the damned um, so the whole goal is to get them their souls into hell because once the the the, the idea is that once they're in hell uh, they are um, you know then then they become like the playthings of the of the demons this by the way is theologically inaccurate I mean this was a, this was a popular idea you see this in in a lot of traditional art and you can see it depicted in many um, uh, many illuminations and illustrations and, and church carvings and things like that in the Middle Ages, this idea of uh, demon, you can certainly see it in, in, you know, in Dante, for instance, but um, uh, but theologically speaking, I mean, according to Orthodox theology, hell is not hell is not run by Satan. Hell is Satan's pr- prison. He's not the warden. He's, in, he's an inmate. Uh, in hell, um, and Dante gets that bit right. But um, anyway, um, but yeah, so what would the demons want with the man's body after the soul departs? Right, exactly. The body's no fun anymore. Um, what's the point? Yeah, they're not interested in playing with that any more than they'd be interested in playing with other bits of you know dirt or whatever. Um, so yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, um, but anyway, sorry. But let me. Continue with Croker's uh, comment here. If so, then perhaps the spirit that seeks to take Mary's body is leaving its previous body, but retains some or at least the last of the previous body's memories as it enters Mary. Perhaps the physical materials in the barrow retain the most violent memories of the previous owner of those materials, and that's the origin of Mary's dream. Some perceived hauntings may reflect this idea. Also, we see material objects remembering some aspects of previous inhabitants, such as Holland and the elves. Now, there are a couple... So there are basically two different suggestions that Croker is making. One is uh, just, uh, again, the idea that the vision that Mary has is a product of, like, the Barrow White spirit. Essentially, now I think the by the 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 best point, um, the best point that uh, Croker is making here about that, and I, I agree, it's a very very important one that I didn't spend long enough on, is the horror, Mary's reaction, the horror. Now, this, um, this seems to me not to prove necessarily. That it is um, <clears throat> okay. Let me back up a step. I, um, I would, I would definitely concede that the not only the horror that Mary experiences, which passes away while looking at Tom, which suggests that it is, you know, the Barrow White spell which is passing away under, you know, as Tom Bombadil breaks the spell over them. That would be consistent with that. So that makes sense. I also agree that the fact that what Mary is recalling is the death of 
the Arnorian dude, right? The Prince of Cardolan or whatever. Um, also does seem to fit with the overall enchantment program of the Whites, right? That he wants them to think of themselves as dead. He wants them to join the dead. Not only a sense of being killed in a simple and mundane kind of way, um, but um, uh, but of but of in their wills itself, you know, sort of coming over to their side in some kind of uh, in some kind of more full and wholehearted way. Um, I'm not exactly sure precisely what that would look like because, of course, they don't get there. But um, anyway, okay, so. So I agree. I mean that that is plausible. That does definitely that does definitely seem to work, and I, I think that's a very serious. Um, uh, I think that that's a really good argument. But I would say one other thing. I would say I'm not sure that the horror of the memory itself well yeah so so a couple of, let's see a couple of you on the uh, in the chat here were uh, uh, Triana was recalling that uh, Mary seems to slip into the memory when the circlet falls down over his eyes right what in the name of wonder he says um now, I'm not sure that it's the circlet triggering the memory, or if it's just... Because notice how it works is, the circlet slips over his eyes, and he says, what in the name of wonder? He's like, I'm wearing a crown? Like, what's up with that? And then he pauses and says, oh, that's right. I remember, right? Um, so, in a sense, it triggers the memory, right? Um, but... Um, um, But I'm not sure that it's necessarily attached to the circlet itself. So Croker has put forward essentially two different ideas. One, that it's the barrow, the spirit of the barrow white, um, which has in some sense the memories of the Prince of Cardolan, um, which is uh, uh, which is coming to marry here. Um, which again, as I say, there's some there's some good evidence in support of that argument. And the second thing is if there are, um, um, if it has to do with the physical artifacts, if the physical artifacts themselves retain the memories of the event in such a way as to prompt this, you know, such a way as to be what leads Mary to, uh, to have this recollection. So I would say, of those two things, I think the latter, there's definitely some support for that. Um, I think that that could work. The idea that physical things retain memories, I think, is very Tolkienian. I mean, think about Anglachel, for instance. I mean, think about Turin's Black Sword, um, which actually speaks, right? Um, and uh, even before it speaks... You know, uh, uh, Melian can tell that there is a fell spirit about the sword. Um, things have their things have their own memories, and can they confer those memories? I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if they could. Um, uh, 
Boomful is asking if there's uh, Hobbit Oathbreakers. Could there be Hobbit Oathbreakers? I guess, in theory. Uh, I mean, again, as we've seen, there seem to be two qualifications to be an Oathbreaker, right? And and again, it's not like I know. <clears throat> I totally sympathize with the decision that they've made in Lotro to make to put Oathbreakers all over the place, right? Because it's like the only legitimate Tolkienian way to get undead right in the game and so and to have them only down in gondor in the paths of the dead is a little limiting right they want to have them elsewhere so we get Oathbreakers and fornos and we get oath breakers in the witch bluffs right and we get oath breakers you know hither and thither all over the place um i um i i in tolkien of course it only has happened the once and um it requires, you know, a serious oath which is broken and then the curse by someone who has the right and the power to deliver that curse as Isildur did. Um, and only by those two combination of the two things does it does it happen. Their oath gives him the leverage, you know, gives him the, the, the right, in a sense, uh, to deliver that curse and make it stick. Um, and he delivers the curse and has the authority to deliver the curse. Um, but, um, anyway, yeah, I, I, it's hard to imagine hobbits getting themselves into the same exact situation, right? Um, JJ, exactly. That, that hobbits break their promises all the time. I mean, think of all of those, uh, 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 books that got borrowed from Bilbo and never returned, right? It happens all the time. Um, but, um, yeah, uh, Sharon is asking, could uh, Denethor have cursed Pippin if he had deserted? Which he kind of did, leave his post, right? Um, sort of, I mean, Denethor gave him permission, sort of. Uh, uh, in as much as Denethor was in charge of what he was doing at that point. Um, but um, could Denethor, well, uh, I doubt it. Um, and besides, remember, the terms of Pippin's oath was that oath-breaking uh, would be repaid uh, with vengeance, right? So uh, that's those are the official terms of his uh, of his oath there. Anyway, and yes, Finboga, I think that you make a really good point. Nobody really has the kind of authority over the hobbits um, that Isildur had because of the solemn pact that was made between him and the you know the, because of the oath that they swore. Um. But, um, anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, so, tell me a second. I want to roll back to Mary here. Could it be physical objects? Yeah, sure, it could be physical objects. Um, let me, let me, let me kind of back up from this and see if I can make some general conclusions here. First... I still disbelieve that the spirit of the Prince of Cardolan is hanging about. I just, I don't think that that's true. It's pretty explicit that the Barrow Whites are external spirit. They are, they are immigrants. They're not natives, right? Um, I do not believe that the souls of those Arnorian dudes are still hanging out in the Barrows. I just, I see no reason to think that that's happening. The only thing that even implies it is this memory, Right. But I think that there could be plenty of other explanations for that memory. Um, one, 
that I said last time, just that it's a dream, right? That in this place, he is having a dream, not of current events, but of past events, but past events that are relevant to the current thing. Um, and that seems to, that's, it's a kind of thing that happens a lot, right? Um, and, uh, uh, and I see no reason to think that that's not what happened. I like this idea of the memories retained in the physical artifacts that are around them, possibly in, the, you know, among other things, the circlet um, that uh, he was wearing. I mean, I, I can, you know, uh, Catriona, I kind of like to think that the idea, right, that when the circlet falls down over his eyes, possibly that's, you know, if I were doing this on screen, right, I would want to have, like, the prin- the last Prince of Cardolan stabbed with a spear in the heart, right, and have him go back and have the crown, you know, his circlet fall down over his eyes exactly like they do to Mary later on, so we get that explicit link with the circlet. I love the idea, right? Um, so whether it's, you know, the weapons, whether it's the clothes, whether it's the crown or the jewels uh, that they're wearing, the idea that those memories are kind of imprinted upon the physical artifacts, I, that seems to me entirely plausible. Now, I don't think that that's necessarily even an alternative reading to the dream thing. I mean, I think that could be where, like, the dream is coming from, essentially, and why he dreams that particular, um, why he dreams that particular dream. Um, so, um, uh, so yeah, so exactly, exactly, JJ, his, his spirit would be beyond the circles of the world by now, um, and there, there has to be an explicit reason for that not to happen, and we don't have one uh, in this uh, in this case. So exactly, Finn, something like an echo of his memories, which Mary experiences in a dream, right? And the effect of that dream was horror upon him. Why? Well, of course it was, because he was under the spell of the Barrow White, very strongly under the spell of the Barrow White, right? He was, he was like unconscious and comatose with the spell of the Barrowway. He was deeply under it, almost ready for the ritual killing, right? Um, so he was deeper under the spell of the Barrow White even than Frodo was. Uh, and we saw the way that Frodo struggled with it. Um, however, I don't think it changes... Um, I don't think it changes the idea that we were talking about last time, the one that Croker referred to in the first paragraph there. Um... It's still like what is the the, the long term effect of it, right? Is still good, right? It still brings about a good thing. You know, the idea that Mary that it is Mary, right, of all people, Mary who had this vision, and Mary who is going to go on and take that sword, which you know, that dagger which could have belonged uh to that Prince of Cardolan who was stabbed in the heart and whose circlet possibly may or may not have fallen down over his eyes. Um, he's going to take that same you know, that dagger, and he's going to stab the Witch King and help to bring about the Witch King's death. Um, I love that, right? Um, and again, that's the idea that this, you know, this this vision that he has, which is part, becomes, you know, sort of wrapped up in this ex- this, this, this experience of, of, of horrifying enchantment that he is having as he is being drawn into, locked into this, you know, deathly situation. And when he's roused out of it, he recalls it, right? Um, and you know, then sort of, and 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 it's and it's a horrible memory, right? Attached as it would be with uh, um, with all these other, you know, the, the the spells that he was under and the things that the white was trying to do to his will and his spirit. And yet, it still has, in a sense, a positive outcome, right? It's it becomes something which. Uh, 
has a, a triumphant ending. And uh, yes, Oakwig, glad would its maker have been, right, uh, to have known the fate of that dagger. Um, and to see that sort of turn to the good there in the Battle of Pelennor Field, I think is really is really awesome. So again, I don't think... Um, when I said it was a dream, I was not even... I mean, you remember I was a little bit resistant to the idea of like Olmo sending the dream or something like that. I don't see any reason to suspect anything like that. Um, personally, I'm ready to go with the the physical artifact thing. That seems to me totally plausible, really. Um, uh, but uh, but again, the way that, that, all, that, that those three things all work together. Um, the, the place, the artifacts, the spells of the Barrow Whites, but then also the larger providential plan, right, which is going to turn Mary's horrifying near-death, near-worse-than-death experience here in the Barrow, uh, and it's going to take that, and it's going to make that into an instrument uh, for striking against the darkness and bringing about the downfall of the Witch King of Angmar, like Providence does, right? So, um, it's pretty, uh, it's it's pretty sweet. Um, and you're also right, Mike, that uh, horror, even if the dream were to have been sent by someone outside the Barrow, Mary could still have been horrified by it. Like, it, that might not have been the intention, as in, you know, Mike is pointing to uh, the example of Frodo's of Frodo and the Galloping, right, as a, a possible example of Frodo kind of, you know, a dreamer not taking the dream in exactly the uh, the proper uh, the proper spirit, um, but um, yeah, yeah, um, uh, yeah. Matt, you're right. It does sort of it does doesn't it build this kind of sense of this missing story, right? That like um, uh, that 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 this dagger, you know, that that there was some there could even have been some prophecy or some foretelling, right, that uh, that this dagger would be important, you know, that it would accomplish something great. And, of course, you, you can see the irony built into that, right? As, uh, you know, you think of the Prince of Cardolan who might have carried it, uh, thinking, like, with this blade I shall, you know, strike down our greatest foe. And, of course, it doesn't happen, right? And his whole... Uh, kingdom is wiped out and it looks like well that prophecy didn't pan out now now did it right but of course uh much later after the fact um um yeah yeah exactly boomful was just thinking the same thing exactly exactly um yeah yeah um cool so Anyway, so I think I, I, to me this I think this stuff all really works together really well. The only the only one reading that I'm really resistant to is the idea that the spirit of the Prince of Cardolan is still hanging out. I, I just I don't I, I don't see any reason to believe that. Um, again, apart from the memory, which again I think is explicable in several other ways. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. Let's um, let's. Let's let's move forward. Let's inch closer to Bree. Okay, so <clears throat> Tom Bombadil has just told him to get up. Dressed up like this, sir, said Sam. 
Where are my clothes? He flung his circlet, belt, and rings on the grass and looked round helplessly, as if expecting, as if he expected to find his cloak, jacket, and breeches and other hobbit garments lying somewhere to hand. "'You won't find your clothes again,' said Tom, bounding down from the mound and laughing as he danced round them in the sunlight. One would have thought that nothing dangerous or dreadful had happened, and indeed the horror faded out of their hearts as they looked at him and saw the merry glint in his eyes. "'What do you mean?' asked Pippin, looking at him, half puzzled and half amused. "'Why not?' All right. Um, first of all, don't you love the um, uh, Sam's just chucking the? I mean, he's got gems. I mean, think of Sam, right? Sam is from a poor family, right? Sam is a Sam is a peasant lad, uh, and that golden crown and the bejeweled rings and the jeweled belt that he's just flung down onto the grass is probably worth more money than his family has made in four generations, right? Um, and yet it's not even uh, it's not even on the radar screen, right? He doesn't even contemplate that, right? He just, like, this stuff is he wants out of it, right? Um, and uh, I think that's uh, uh, I think that's 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 pretty awesome. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, Sharon, you're right. He's not Lobelia, right? Sam is not Lobelia. Um, Lobelia would be thinking about that right away, right? Sam has no thought for that at all. Um, you, it's just it strikes me how uh, how how deeply untempted. <laughs> He is uh, by this, by this whole, by, by all this stuff, and uh, and you, you are absolutely right, Fourth Dauntless. Um, later on, of course, in the Return of the King, the uh, uh, the the gaffer is going to ask the question, "What's come of his waistcoat?" Right, and the answer, this is the answer, right? What came of his waistcoat is that it's it was it was it's it's in the barrow, right? It didn't even make it to his waistcoat. Didn't even make it to Bree. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, <laughs> yeah, Rothgar says he's wondering what the original untranslated word for the hyphenated hobbit garments was. Yeah, great point. Another hobbit garments lying somewhere to hand. Uh, yeah, you're right. It's, it's, it's again, the, the more I see these, right, um, isn't that, I, mean, I don't know, do, do, don't you guys find the same thing? That theory of sparrows, you know, once she suggested, I'd never thought of it before. Um, I remember having discussions with the publishers at Houghton Mifflin when I was publishing my book um, about the hyphenations and being like, you know, and they were like, well, Tolkien's really inconsistent with it. Like, it's just annoying, right? Anyway, but once Sparrow made that suggestion, it's just like every single hyphenated phrase I come across, I'm like, yeah, that's absolutely, that is absolutely perfect. Hobbit garment is clearly a different, it's a noun, right? That's a thing, Hobbit garment. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's fun to think of that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, Matt, you're absolutely right that Sam's lack of temptation with the riches here, uh, is a pretty close parallel with the temptation, uh, uh, of the ring. Um, 
yeah, yeah. As, as uh, Matt says, Sam isn't isn't going for the rings and gold, uh, even when it's free. Only turning Mordor into a garden is a temptation, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, Galandar, you're right. It does seem that it's interesting that Sam. It's not just that Sam is not tempted by the riches, but that he misses his his peasant garments, right? Uh, I mean, presumably, his waistcoat wasn't all that much, right? It wasn't all that much of a garment, exactly. Um, probably not worth all that much. Um, but he is more interested to find his cloak, jacket, and breeches lying around. Um, yeah, yeah. Um... And Tom says, you won't find your clothes again. Leading to the disturbing question, what do the Barrowites do with them? Right? I mean, it's creepy enough to think that they were not only, you know, had rings and stuff put on them, but they were stripped and dressed again by the Barrowites. Right? I mean, that's... That's... That's a, a deeply creepy thing to wake up to. But, um... But what did they do even with the clothes, right? Um, and notice Pippin is Pippin is wondering the same thing, right? What do you mean? <laughs> why not, right? Why why won't we find our clothes again? Um, surely they're around somewhere, right? Did they did they eat them <laughs> or something like? What came of our clothes? Um, uh, yeah, yeah. And Hrothgar, you're absolutely right. Sam is also being practical here. The This gear, right, this barrow gear is not very practical at all. Um, <laughs> yes, several people are suggesting uh, uh, barrow white Craigslist or eBay. Uh, that seems very plausible. Um yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's look at Tom's answer. But Tom shook his head, saying, "You found yourselves again out of the deep water. Clothes are but little wa- clothes are but little loss if you escape from drowning. Be glad, my merry friends, and let the warm sunlight heat now heart and limb." Cast off these cold rags. Run naked on the grass while Tom goes a-hunting. Hang on a second there. You found yourselves again out of the deep water. Clothes are but little loss if you escape from drowning. Be glad, my merry friends, and let the warm sunlight heat now heart and limb. Cast off these cold rags. Run naked on the grass while Tom goes a-hunting. Okay. I guess it works. Sorry, I was losing my scansion there in the middle of the in the middle of the paragraph. He sprang away downhill, whistling and calling. Looking down after him, Frodo saw him running away southwards along the green hollow between their hill and the next, still whistling and crying. Hey now, come hoy now, whither do you wander? Up, down, near or far, here, there, or yonder? Sharp ears, wise nose, swish tail, and bumpkin. White socks, my little lad, and old fatty lumpkin. So he sang, running fast, tossing up his hat and catching it, until he was hidden by a fold of the ground. 
but for some time his hey-now-hoy-now came floating back down the wind, which had shifted round towards the south. Yeah, (laughs) Tamara, you are right. Tom is the master of not answering the question that was asked to him. Um, Absolutely. Um, Clothes are but little loss if you escape from drowning. Um, That is... um, that is definitely um, a, a well. It's a very distinct non-answer to the question, right? Why Pippin has just asked, "Why not? Why will we not get our clothes back?" Right? Again, surely they must be somewhere around still. Uh, and Tom says, "No, you found yourselves again out of the deep water. Clothes are but little loss if you escape from drowning." Um. So let's think about that for a second. Notice the parallel that Tom seems to be making, I think. Where are their clothes? Where do you think their clothes are? I mean, yes. Fourth dollars, that's exactly what I'm thinking. I mean, their clothes almost have to be down in the barrow. Still, right? Um, I mean, that's got to be where they are, right? So his his drowning metaphor, right? Um, if you fall into water fully clothed, right, it may well behoove you to get rid of some of your garments, right, which might drag you down, right, which might, you know, which might laden you and, and, and drag you down. You might want to kick off your boots. You might want to uh, uh, let go of your cloak, right? Uh, if you are a, a, a lady dressed in large and many, you know, uh, uh, skirts and things, it, it, that some of that might be inconvenient, right? Um, so it's well known that one of the things you do if you are wearing a lot of clothing is get rid of some of it, right? And and it will sink or float away. If you escape from drowning, right? So if you fall into a body of water and you escape, it's pretty foolish to dive back into that same water in order to recover the clothing that you lost, right? Clothes are but little loss if you escape from drowning. Um, So yeah, okay, you might have lost your boots, and you're not getting those boots back again that you kicked off when you fell into the the ocean. but uh, but it's okay, right? Again, you 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 you're really missing the point here. Uh, if you uh, want to go diving uh, for your clothes, and that seems to be, in as much as the answer that he gives is an answer to the question, that seems to me to be his answer to the question. They're down there, right? Your clothes are down there in the barrow, but you don't want to do that. You don't want to go there, right? Um, going back down into the barrow to seek for your clothes would be like diving into the dangerous body of water you just escaped from with your life, uh, barely, uh, in order to recover your clothes, right? Um, uh, so, so yeah, I, that, that seems to me the answer, uh, that he's pretty much giving. Um, and he says, just be glad, my merry friends, let the warm sunlight heat now heart and lin. Cast off these cold rags, run naked on the grass. Um, which, of course, is excellent recuperative <laughs> advice, I suppose. Um, uh, it's, um, 
I I can't really speak uh, to the efficacy of running naked on the grass uh, in this kind of a program, but you'll notice one thing, right? Um, We noticed already that he was laying the the treasure out on the top of the barrow, right, Uh, for the sun to warm. He's now suggesting they do the same thing with their bodies, right? Um, They were sunning... They were sunning, he was sunning the treasure. He's urging them to sun themselves as well, right? So I think it's not merely, um, you know, run naked on the grass in the sense of like, you know, be free, uninhibited, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, cast off your, I mean, it is a, a kind of recovery of innocence, Marianne. I agree. It certainly has that kind of, uh, that kind of symbolic feel to it. Um, totally. But at the same time, it's um, uh, it's clearly uh, it's an interesting parallel to the sunning of the treasure, right? Like we're gonna we're gonna cleanse it, we're gonna let the sun cleanse it. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Good. Um, and yeah, I wonder. You know, Matt is wondering if maybe the clothes themselves uh, might have taken on the memory of the barrow, um, and that uh, it, it would. It's not only about them going back down into the barrow and possibly, you know, uh, by choosing to re-enter it in order to find something, in order to to find something. It's, uh, minor treasure as far as monetary value is concerned, right? But they're going into the barrow in order to get something and, uh, uh, and, uh, and claim it for yourself. That might not be a good idea, but yeah, Matt, I wonder if their own clothes are in some way kind of, you know, tainted by this. Um, yeah, yeah. But also Matt is thinking it's also kind of time for them to put on sort of new identities of a sort after their escape. Um, yeah, I mean, I do think, Matt, that is another thing that's kind of hard to avoid in this. They're they're not exactly the same, right? Um, Sam's, Sam, Sam's not getting his Westgate back here, right? Uh, the Westgate that uh, he left Gaffer Gamgee wearing is already gone before he even gets debris, and I think that that's a really important thing. So yeah, yeah, Hrothgar, it is like a symbolic rebirth, emerging naked uh, from the grave like a newborn. That does seem totally appropriate in this way, and that seems to be a part of what uh, Tom Bombadil would seem to be suggesting. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So, Tom's pony summoning verse is fairly simple, right? Um, I like it has three parts, right? Uh, the first half line, which is the only part, interestingly, which contains imperatives, right? You'd think that imperatives would be fairly central to this, right? Hey, ponies, get over here, right? Come on, ponies. Come right now, ponies. I'm talking to you, right? Um but he does very little of that. Hey now, come hoy now is all is it. That's it. That's the only imperative we get. The come uh, is it, assuming that come hoy is still an imperative, which I'm not a hundred percent sure of. But um, uh, but anyway, 
that's it, right? After that, um, after that, we, uh, what do we get? The next section after the imperatives is questions. Whither do you wander? Up, down, near or far, here, there, or yonder, right? Where are you? Right? Um, yeah. Um, so again, he's not, um, he's not conjuring the ponies. He's not summoning the ponies, right? He's having a conversation with the ponies, right? Whither do you want to, where, where are you exactly? Are you up? Are you down? Near, far, here, there, yonder? Um, and then the third part of the song is just their names, right? And he doesn't attach anything. Notice that nothing is syntax- syntactically attached to the names, right? Uh, there's, no, there's no verb attached to them. It's just a list. Um, sharp ears, wise nose, swish tail and bumpkin, white socks, my little lad, and old fatty lumpkin. So the only, the only thing besides names to ponies that gets added into that list is the one little affectionate add-on, my little lad, right? Um, What do you make of their names? Right? We will be told uh, that Mary has given them no such names. Right? But, um... What do you make of their names? See, Fourth Dollars, that to me is exactly the question. Uh, are these the na- Are these names, the horses' names for themselves? Or are they names that Tom has merely imposed upon them? Right? I I love that idea. Right? That he knows the names of the ponies. And it's possible that they are the original names of the ponies. That they are the names that the ponies would give to themselves. Right? Um... The kind of name that Treebeard would say you would be hasty to give to just in, tell to just anybody, right? Um, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm convinced of that. Um, bumpkin, right? I'm not, I don't have to make a bumpkin. Bumpkin is its own name? Bricktails is asking what horse would name itself Fatty Lumpkin. Well, exactly. Right? That's a... um, That's a... That's a question to be asked, right? Um, White Sox is another one. Uh, Of all of them, actually, White Sox is the one that I find most... uh, hard to believe, right? Um, Because it's a clothing metaphor, right? A horse wouldn't use the word sock, 
right? I mean, like it might be, you know, the the fact that the horse has, you know, markings that look like white socks may well be like its most distinguishing feature. And I could imagine a horse name, you know, which included, you know, which which focused on that particular feature. But he wouldn't call them socks, right? So at the very least, it's it's a uh, it's a it's a translation, right? But I'm not really sure. Um, uh, I think that I think that these are names that Tom Bombadil has given them. Um, I think it's just what he calls them. I tend not to believe it's primarily White Sox. Secondarily, Fatty Lumpkin, and thirdly, Bumpkin. Like the sharp ears, wise nose, and swish tail. I I can buy that. I could buy that those are their horse names, right? Could totally believe that, but I don't believe it with the other three. Um, I think that these are names that Tom Bombadil has given to them. Um, they are different from now. Oakwig was just bringing up Bill the Pony. Right. Um, think of how different these names are from from Bill. Right. Bill is just a name given to the pony. Right. It's in a sense not intrinsic to the pony itself. Whereas wise nose, right, sharp ears. Right? Were the hobbits aware that one of those ponies had partic- had sharper ears than the other ponies? That there was that there was anything peculiar or particular about the sharpness of that particular pony's ears, I doubt they'd noticed that, right? But Tom noticed that, right? Of course. You know, they were his guests. Those ponies were his guests for several days. And I see no reason to think... Remember, Tom doesn't spend all the time in the house, right? I see no reason to think Tom wasn't out hanging out and telling stories with the ponies just as much as he was indoors with the hobbits, right? So, um, you know, while the hobbits were sleeping in in the early morning, for instance. Um... Yeah, Lady Shmebulak, I I have my my car named Bill as well. I had a my uh, my old Toyota Corolla which I just retired, but he's still running. I gave him my to my little brother uh, who's still driving him. He's now almost at he's at over two hundred fifty thousand miles now. Drove him for twelve years, uh, uh, commuting down in uh, Delaware and Maryland. But anyway, uh, great name for a unspectacular, reliable little old car. Um, but uh, anyway, uh, so, yeah, Lady Shmabiok is saying maybe the ponies choose their name. Um, Mike is saying maybe there are there are ironic nicknames, like calling a tall guy tiny, right? Yeah, I mean, Mike, that would be really funny, right? If, 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 if sharp ears were like half deaf uh, and, uh, you know, and... Uh, uh, you know, I, that 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 would be funny, uh, but I don't really know. Um, I think uh, I think it's likelier to they're likelier to be actual descriptions of them. But maybe he's maybe he's having fun with them, right? Maybe he's uh, uh, he's he's kind of playing with them. He certainly seems to be playing with Fatty Lumpkin, uh, I think, um, and. Uh, I love how he calls him my lumpkin, right? They they came to meet my lumpkin, or they got to know my lumpkin, right? Um, but um, 
Right, exactly, Finn. So Fatty could be a, a really thin young pony. Now he's not, right? Which is why I tend not to think that uh, the names are ironic in that way. But, um, but anyway, you know, that, that, that kind of thing is certainly a possibility. So, but again, I'm, so I don't think that these, are, that these are their true horse names that they have disclosed to Tom Bombadil. I think they're just names that he gives them. I think they're affectionate names that he gives to them. And the main thing that I think it shows us is how much more closely it he pays attention to them, right? Um, how much more not only affection but respect he gives to the ponies than they do. Um, yeah. Um, I... Somebody do some research for me. I don't know the contemporary, that is to say, 1940-ish, you know, like 1939, 1938, uh, implications of bumpkin, right? I want to make sure not to make assumptions here. Um, What does the word bumpkin mean? What are the associations with the word bumpkin? Uh, in, you know, 1938 England. Um, it's possible that we're missing something there. Um, it's also possible that we're not, but it's possible that we are. So I'd, I would want to be careful about that. So somebody do some research on Bumpkin. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, ah, Irenaeus already was looking at it. Okay, good, good. Um, Okay. Came from a Dutch word, apparently, reputedly. Okay. A derogatory reference to Dutch people as short and dumpy. Okay. So it has more to do with body type. Short and stumpy. Right? All right. Okay. That would make sense, right? Why you would call him Bumpkin. Um, one could see how the pony could have the physical characteristics that could lead to that. Okay, all right. See, I had no idea of that, uh, but that seems uh, that seems possible. Um, yeah, Irindus is wondering if Bumpkin is sort of barrel shaped. Yeah, and then that makes you then wonder which which of the hobbits is barrel rider, right? Uh, exactly, exactly. Um, Speaking of which, by the way, you uh, you guys noticed my subtitle on this slide, right? My subtitle on this slide is Ponies Take Some Catching, I believe. Uh, remember who said that? Where is that quotation from? Ponies take some catching, I believe, after a long start. And so do burglars, right? Yes, Bilbo to Smaug. I couldn't help but think, uh, in uh, in in reading this passage, that there seems to be there is there is a striking there is a striking conservation of ponies in the in the Lord of the Rings compared with the Hobbit in particular, right? In the Hobbit. Uh, Two sets of ponies get eaten, 
right? I think we get one set of ponies eaten by goblins and then a second set of ponies eaten by the dragon, right? Um, the I mean, as I once was joking with somebody on Twitter, you know, from a pony perspective, The Hobbit is a pure horror story, right? Uh, it's, uh, I mean, it's that, 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 that story is not kind with its ponies, right? And, uh, uh, and, yeah, and right away, right? Um, right, right away we get, you know, the ponies, as soon as they leave, they seem to have lost all their ponies again. It's like, if this were the Hobbit, like, the Barrowites would already be picking their teeth with the bones of those ponies, right? But it's not. We're in a different world now, and, uh, and uh, no pony is harmed in the writing of The Lord of the Rings. And yeah, Matthew, you're absolutely right. There is not a single pony mortality in all of the Lord of the Rings. 100% of ponies in this story survive. Um, now, you're right, Fourth Thoughtless, that we do get the dramatic on-screen death of at least one horse and hear about many other horses having died. Uh, um, but um, uh, but anyway, yeah, it, it's uh, still pretty striking that uh, when it comes to Hobbit ponies, uh, we uh, we are uh, uh, especially Hobbit ponies that get names. Um, it's very it's very remarkable the contrast here. But that I think seems to me another part of the uh, yeah, and I don't know. I mean. I don't remember references to Tolkien getting lots of sad letters from kids mourning for the for the great mortality of the ponies uh, in The Hobbit. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, however, thinking about how this fits into, so not just thinking about the contrast with The Hobbit, um, but um, thinking about the... Um, the way that this fits into this moment, right? Um, it's very, it's very Bombadilian, right? This sort of near miraculous recovery of their of their ponies, right? It sort of seems like, no matter what else, I mean, it, miraculous enough for them to have escaped, right? For them to have been freed from the spells of the Barrow Whites. Um, but they've lost their horses. I mean, obviously, those horses are not coming back, uh, and they're not going to have time to spend however long it would take to go look for their ponies, right? Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, the fact that Tom Bombadil can then go dancing around, running fast, tossing his hat up in the air and catching it, uh, and calling out, hey now, hoy now, uh, and come up with all the ponies again, um, that's a, a particularly, uh, a particularly Bombadilian moment, right, to, to sort of pull that out. But also, again, thinking back to his hospitality, right, he has rescued them. Of course he's going to rescue the ponies. What is he going to do? Not rescue the ponies? Of course, he's going to rescue the ponies. Um, uh, I think it's. Um, uh, one almost wonders too, if um, I mean he's about to explain, of course, about Fatty Lumpkin, 
Um, well, why don't we actually just wait until we get to that? Um, the air was growing very warm again. The hobbits ran about for a while on the grass, as he told them. I love this, how they dutifully run naked on the grass, right? Okay, so oh, that's part of the treatment, right? I've got to run naked on the grass. Then they lay basking in the sun with the delight of those that have been wafted suddenly from bitter winter to a friendly clime, or of people that, after being long ill and bedridden, wake one day to find that they are unexpectedly well, and the day is again full of promise. Recovery, right? By the time that Tom returned, they were feeling strong and hungry. He reappeared, hat first, over the brow of the hill, and behind him came in, came in an obedient line six ponies, their own five and one more. The last was plainly old fatty Lumpkin. He was larger, stronger, fatter, and older than their own ponies. Mary, to whom the others belonged, had not, in fact, given them any such names, but they answered to the new names that Tom had given them for the rest of their lives. See, I, guess, I think it's. I think these are Tom Bobadil names, right? He gave them the names. Um, they, they fit them, presumably, but I think that it's not their true names. I think it, they're his names. Tom called them one by one, and they climbed over the brow and stood in a line. Then Tom bowed to the hobbits. Here are your ponies now, he said. They've more sense in some ways than you wandering hobbits have, more sense in their noses, for they sniff danger ahead, which you walk right into, and if they run to save themselves, then they run the right way. You must forgive them all, for though their hearts are faithful, to face fear of Barrow Whites is not what they are made for. See, here they come again, bringing all their burdens. Um, yeah, Lady Shmabulak, the ponies get a choice, right? And Tom is aware of that choice, right? Um, they have more sense than you hobbit folk, right? They chose better. Um, they sniffed danger ahead, and they ran away. Um... You know their their hearts are faithful, but the you know the 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 you know the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Good. Um, see, here they come again, bringing all their burdens. Um, again, just like the hobbits and the the ponies and the hobbit don't. Um, yeah, yeah. And Robert, I agree. Tom is something like the Edenic uh, Adam here with his authority in naming creatures as they shall ever after be known. Yes. And of course, also correspondingly in their obedience and response to him, right? The relationship that he has with all good beasts would seem to be um, very, very Edenic, actually, right? Um, he... I won't say relates to them as equals because that I don't think that's necessarily true, um, but uh, but he certainly has a very different kind of relationship with the ponies as we've seen as we've seen all along, right? So the reason the ponies ran off because they made a smarter choice, really, than the hobbits did, even if it was in that sense more cowardly, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, what was the other thing I wanted to mention? Oh, yeah. Um, 
Good, right, yeah. Matt says that he condescends to the ponies as he condescends to the hobbits. Yes, uh, yes. Matt boldly using the word condescend in its old, not negatively connoted sense, right? Um, yes, he, 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 he comes to their level uh, and relates to them on their level. Um, almost like he's not their peer, but a- almost as if he were their peer, right? Um Yes, and it is also like J.J., I agree, like a good and just king to his subjects as well. Yes, that's that same sense. A good king condescends to his subjects. That's why back in the old days when you believed that, and again, that's that, that's the thing, right? The reason condescension is always bad in the modern world. We never use the word condescending in a good way. Um, but the reason we don't use condescending in a good way is because we don't believe that some people genuinely are higher than other people. Right. We believe everybody's on the same level. So if somebody is being condescending to someone else, they are giving themselves airs as if they were above so that they have to come down. Right. So that by calling somebody condescending, what we're saying is that they're being pretentious. Right. Not that they're being humble, but that they're sitting themselves up above us. Right. Such that they would come down to us in the first place. Um, But of course, if you believed, as they used to believe, that some people were in fact higher than others, then if that were true, if there were some people who were higher than others and the higher people did come down and meet the lower people on their level, that would be a good thing to do. That would be a humble thing to do. It's the opposite of arrogant, right? Um, yeah, <clears throat> and Br- Brick tells I agree. Uh, sort of theologically is the only way that we use the word condescend. But even then, people tend to avoid using the word condescend. I mean, it's true that Christ condescends to become man. Um, but most modern people won't use that word in that context uh, because it has almost universally negative uh, connotations in our in our modern setting. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Anyway, um, oh, but I wanted to mention the point. Somebody made this observation in passing. Bricktails did. Um, interesting the for the rest of their lives right the narrator has been pretty invisible for a while now right um you'll remember the narrator was not very invisible back in the early chapters those early chapters that i now regret discussing as quickly as we did spending only what four or five weeks on chapter one as totally indefensible three weeks maybe it was no i think it was four anyway um uh, yeah. So back in chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, we got a lot from the narrator, right? Like the 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 thinking fox scene, right? Um, like the commentary on the party, right? All that stuff. Um, but then that after chapter three, especially once the Black Rider shows up, the narrator fades back, and we don't get. We very rarely get reminded that we have a modern narrator who is the one who is transmitting the story to us, right? That's still the concept, right? Just like it was in The Hobbit. Um, You have a modern... And again, that was very explicit in Chapter 1. You may remember that at Bilbo's party in Chapter 1, the the dragon, which passes over them, the firework dragon, passes over them whistling like an express train, 
right? Um, which, you know, some people say is anachronistic. It's not anachronistic, right? It's the modern narrator talking to the modern readers and telling us what it was like so that we, the modern readers who are hearing the story, can picture it, right? Can, 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 because we know what an express train sounds like, right? Um, so it's not saying that there are express, express trains in the Shire, right? And that would be anachronistic. Um, but anyway, we get that clear evidence of the modern narrator of the story. Um, the recollection that we are not just kind of sort of experiencing this story as it unfolds in some kind of way, that we are reading a document which was assembled after the fact. So I agree, Brick Tales, that it is, that, that is an important observation, that in that moment, and it's the first such moment we've gotten in a while, um, we, we do have a reminder that we're reading the story after the fact in that sense. Um, uh, for the rest of their lives, they uh, um, they answered to these they answered to these names, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. That's a great observation. Okay, it's going to be field trip time soon, but we'll. Uh, carry on. At least one more. We'll, we'll, we'll do this one and then we'll be done for tonight. Mary, Sam, and Pippin now clothed themselves in spare garments from their packs, and they soon felt too hot, for they were obliged to put on some of the thicker and warmer things that they had brought against the oncoming of winter. Where does that other animal, that fatty lumpkin, come from? asked Frodo. He's mine, said Tom, my four-legged friend, though I seldom ride him, and he, and he wanders often far, free upon the hillsides. When your ponies stayed with me, they got to know my lumpkin, and they smelt him in the night, and quickly ran to meet him. I thought he'd look for them, and with his words of wisdom, take all their fear away. But now, my jolly lumpkin, old Tom's going to ride. Hey, he's coming with you, just to set you on the road, so he needs a pony. For you cannot easily talk to hobbits that are riding when you're on your own legs trying to trot beside them. The hobbits were delighted to hear this, and thanked Tom many times, but he laughed and said that they were so good at losing themselves that he would not feel happy till he had seen them safe over the borders of his land. "'I've got things to do,' he said, "'my making and my singing, my talking and my walking, and my watching of the country. Tom can't be, can't be always near to open doors and willow cracks. Tom has his house to mind, and goldberries waiting.'" By the way, okay, so what I've always wanted to see is a daily planner page of Tom Bombadil's day, right? Uh, Tom Bombadil's daily planner. Uh, he's got his making and his singing, his talking and his walking, his watching of the country, right? The occasional appointment to uh, uh, to open doors and willow cracks. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's an interesting list, though, isn't it? My watching of the country. The last thing he mentioned is the one that seems most sensible, right? Most sort of obvious. Okay, he's watching over the country. That's good. That's good. His singing, well, okay. We know he does that all the time anyway. Um, 
is talking. All right. Who's he talking to exactly? Uh, my walking, my leaping on the hilltops, right? Does he, does he, does he pencil that in on, uh, you know, does he do that every other day? Is that a Monday, Wednesday, Friday activity or, uh, I don't know. Um, but my making, what does he make? Yeah, Fourth Dauntless, I totally agree. Tom clearly talks to the trees and beasts and birds, right? That's how he gets all those stories. Absolutely. Um, yeah, Hrothgar, I'm intrigued also. The the making. Why, why does he... What does he make? Yeah, he makes merry, says JJ. Yeah, well, he does that, certainly. Um, he makes music, and Matt, you're right. That I mean, it is interesting that he, he pairs it with singing, right? Um, uh, yeah. Is my making and my singing, is that two ways of talking about the same thing? Um, I'm inclined to think that it is. I mean, we know he doesn't separate his talking and his walking, though it's not like they're the same activity, right? Um, and, uh, oh, and that's an excellent point, Galandar. You are absolutely right. Watching of the country is not the same as watching over the country, right? That he, he is uh, watching for the joy of it, not taking responsibility for it. Um, yes, his watching of the country. He needs to watch it, right? To watch it grow and that's uh, how he's learned like the story that he told them when they saw the sort of passage of time right yeah yeah um, and yeah but see for Thomas, that's exactly what I was thinking too that's why I was so interested in his using the word making because a maker that's normally a sub creator right poets are makers um and sub-creating is something, I mean, for Thomas, as you say, we don't see Tom Bombadil doing that a lot, at all, ever. Do we have any evidence that Tom Bombadil ever sub-creates anything? I mean, he sings his songs, but even his songs are not exactly making precisely right I mean Tom Bombadil's songs it's not like you know I sang of leaves of leaves of gold and leaves of gold there grew right Yeah, those slippers came from somewhere. I agree. He's got all this house. He's got all this furniture. He probably does make things, right? Um, but again, it would... It's paired with his singing, right? So does he make things like actual physical crafts, right? Uh, you know, he does pottery and... and uh, uh, you know, cobbling, right? He makes yellow boots and things. Um, 
uh, and all those, and he sings while he does all those things, just like he talks while he does his walking, right? Um, yeah, so I can buy that. I can buy that. I don't know why I'm resistant to that, but I am. My resistance might not be justifiable, but I find myself resistant to the idea that he's referring to physical crafts. Why am I resistant to that? I think the main reason I'm resistant to that is that he doesn't seem... Consider this anti-parallel, right? Think about Thorin and company singing about the wonderful treasures made by the dwarves of old in the Lonely Mountain, right? The harps and the cups and um, goblets they carved there for themselves, right? Uh, and all that kind of thing. Think about them singing about the, the craftsmanship, right, of their ancestors. And contrast that with Tom singing about his his coat and his boots, right? I don't deny that Tom Bombadil probably does physically make his own clothes and build his own house. Uh, that's probably true. Fourth Thomas is pointing out that it's possible that he could acquire some of his goods in trade, right, or as gifts, uh, as he, you know, we know communicates with Farmer Maggot. Um, probably. So, I mean, yeah, it's possible that he acquired this. So the idea of him engaging in trade is even more bizarre, frankly, um, than imagining him sitting there with, like, leatherworking tools. But, uh... I But if he does, he doesn't seem to take any pleasure in that. Okay, it's not about the making. He's not doesn't seem to be interested in the making. Um it's if he made his boots that fact seems to be irrelevant, right? What he is sings about, what he sings about is the yellowness of his boots, right? That's what he's excited about. Um, yeah. Exactly, Hrothgar. I have yellow boots, aren't they neat? That's the spirit of Tom singing about his yellow boots. Um... And it's, it, to me, it's an instructive contrast with the way that the dwarves sing of their works of hand, right? Um, so, yeah, I don't... And it's because of the delight that he takes. I don't know. I mean, maybe you could say this is the innocent delight, right? That um, you should be able to make a pair of wonderful yellow boots, be delighted in the yellowness of those yellow boots, and take joy and pleasure in them, even though you have no ego investment in the yellowness of the boots, right? And you are genuinely forgetful of your own, you know, role in the making. And you're not praising yourself, but merely the boots' yellowness. Uh, you know, that's uh, that's quite possible. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe he does. Maybe he does. Um, but, um, yeah. Oh, by the way, I see somebody asking a question about TexMoot. If you show up at TexMoot, I'll make sure you're not turned away. Let me just say that. <laughs> I hate turning people away from conferences. Show up and 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 uh, uh, and we'll make sure it happens. Um. Anyway, worst case scenario is that we might not have a lunch for you. Whatever, it's fine. Um. Right. Okay. So Aruron is thinking. Unless Tolkien is presenting a metaphysical concept of making or subcreating, of Tom subcreating mirth, subcreating merriment, subcreating joy itself as the contrast to the dwarves constantly wetting their mirth and merriment to things. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I guess Aurora, that's exactly the kind of making, again, especially paired with singing, that I imagine Tom doing. I mean, again, does this mean that I think that Tom, you know, never uses a hammer or, you know, leatherworking tools or anything like that? No, I mean, he might do. I don't see any reason necessarily why he wouldn't, but, um, um, but I can't imagine Tom Bombadil listing the manufacture of physical artifacts as one of the things he has to do, as like one of the things that's usually on his daily planner, right? Um, that's the thing. That's why. That is the thing that sticks with me. Um, I can't see Tom listing. I got some boot making. Like my boots are getting. Oh, I gotta. I, I. I gotta. I gotta patch my coat. Right. I gotta. You know. I gotta. There's like some. Uh, you know. Some of the. Some of the. 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 You know. Well, I don't know how his cabin is made. Right. But like. Yeah. Some of the. Uh, you know, the wattle and daub that's like, you know, patching up the walls together is getting holes in it, right? So I got to repatch the wall over there. I can't see Tom listing things like that among, like when he says I've got things to do, I don't think that's the kind of thing. That That's my objection, is the idea of thinking that that's what Tom's saying. He's like, hey man, I, I got a full, I got a full, you know, to-do list, right? I got I, I, I got a honeydew list a mile long. I'm sorry, I can't stay, right? That I can't I can't get behind that concept of Tom. I can get behind the idea that he takes delight in doing these things and would delightfully include them in the list of things to do, that they're not a burden for him at all. Um but um um now Katriana says those things could fall under the category of Tom has his house to mind. Possibly. Possibly. Um, but again, I don't think... I don't think that Tom's house is much like a normal house in this way. I don't think that Tom is your average, you know, homeowner who would always be making, you know, side trips to the Home Depot. Um, even Tom has his house to mind, I think, is uh, is sort of 
strikes me as kind of metaphorical there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, Tillian says, I always felt that Goldberry's waiting was the only thing that he really carried about, uh, cared about, and several of you are uh, implying that uh, Tom is being slyly euphemistic when he talks about having his house to mine. <laughs> this is like too much Tom Bombadil information for me. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's it's all good. <laughs> it's all good. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Um, but I'm still intrigued by the word making. Yes, making is associated with the making of song, with the making of verse. Absolutely it is. Um it's just interesting to me that that come came first, uh, especially since, unlike so many of Tom's word choice word choices, it is unconnected with rhyme, right? Talking and my walking, right? We get some internal rhyme there, but my making and my singing, there's no there's no rhyme related reason, right? Uh, to enforce, you know, my making and my singing there. But anyway, okay. All right. Um, last thing I want to point out here before we shift to our uh, field trip is um, uh, Fatty Lumpkin. The implications of Fatty Lumpkins. When your pony stayed with me, they got to know my Lumpkin and they smelt him in the night and quickly ran to meet him. I like to think that this is the um, I, I, I like to think that this is the pony equivalent of the song that he gave to the hobbits to sing if ever they get into trouble, right? Um, that he had a similar parting injunction to the ponies, right? If you uh, if you find yourselves in trouble on the downs because your you know your hobbit masters lead you into a mess, then uh, you know just just. You know, keep your nose open, and you'll smell Lumpkin, and and uh, and he will, you know, lead you to to safety. Um, that seems to me quite likely. You know that he would have been looking out for them in 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 the same kind of way. Tony, I agree. Um, Tony, I saw this before, and I didn't get back to it. Uh, at first, but Tony, you are absolutely right. He's mine is a really fascinating expression, right? Um, and Tony, I assume you're thinking as 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 I am about Goldberry's comment, right? How about everything in the forest belongs each to itself, right? All the living things belong each to themselves. Um, and his the first thing he says about Fatty Lumpkin is he's mine, right? Um, so everything in the forest belongs each to itself, except Fatty Lumpkin, I guess, who belongs to him. Um, um, now, Bricktails, you're absolutely right. The important thing that we see there is he does immediately add my four-legged friend, right? So it's not like he's claiming mastery or ownership over him in the way that necessarily in the way that uh, Goldberry was, um, uh, you know, denouncing earlier on. Um, but... Um, Yeah. Hrothgar, you're right. Mine could be a kind of uh, 
could be a kind of endearment. Um, I mean, I can't help but think of, um, what am I thinking of? Oh, I'm thinking of that passage in C.S. Lewis's screw tape letters about the different senses of, uh, of the possessive pronoun, right? Um, the different ways in which we use the word my, and there's the my of ownership, right? But there are many other, uh, uh, there are, there are many other things that we say my about, which are not ownership, you know, um, you know, my father, my wife, my country, my God, right? Uh, none of those things imply ownership exactly. They're not as, uh, uh, they're not like my boots, right? Which is what, uh, uh, as C.S. Lewis says. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, Brandon is wondering, has Fatty Lumpkin given himself to Tom? Is, is, is Fatty the one who pledged himself to Tom uh, in some way? Um that seems quite possible. I mean, I guess I would, uh, um, <laughs> Tony suggests that Fatty Lumpkin has a life debt to Tom, uh, like Chewbacca. Uh, yes, Tony, I think that the, uh, thinking of Fatty Lumpkin as being just like Chewbacca is possibly my favorite concept from tonight's class, actually. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, um, uh, that's, that's excellent. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, Blue Wizard, excellent point. Uh, uh, talks about how he uses the possessive pronoun my, um, of Goldberry a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> Rothko says, expect the Fatty Lumpkin Tom Bombadil story in the Amazon prequels. Oh, man. You know, Rothgar, if if we get if we get the early days of the relationship between Fatty Lumpkin and Tom Bombadil in the Amazon's uh, uh, series, they are doing something right. Holy cow. Um, absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. That would be excellent. But not, this does seem like a reciprocal relationship here, right? Um, uh, that, um, yeah, <laughs> Fatty owes Tom a great wear guild <laughs> suggests so quick. <laughs> I, I can't think it's quite as grandiose as that, uh, frankly. Um, uh, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, they seem to have an arrangement, right? Um, I see Tom seldom rides him, right? Uh, and he wanders often far, free upon the hillsides, right? Tom, Fatty Lumpkin is a free agent, right? But he is, but he is friends with Tom Bombadil. And, uh, he, um, sometimes allows Tom Bombadil to ride on him, right? And in return, what does he get from this arrangement? Well, he ain't called fatty for nothing, right? And I think that, and that's a generally a good thing for an animal, right? If you're, uh, uh, if you are, if you are, if you're a pony running free upon the the hillsides, uh, and your name is Fatty, you're living right, right? So uh, I think that that, um, uh, I think I, I I think that that works, um, yeah. Uh, what is it that he gets? Grass and rainwater, right? Yeah. Yeah, fed with lots of grass and rainwater. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, let us... Um, 
<laughs> yeah. Tony Mead says you can't help but think of Aorl and his come here, man's bane, and get a new name. Yeah. Um, Tony, that's also delightful. Thinking about Tom Bombadil and Fenton. The juxtaposition of the the mythic historical meeting of Tom Bombadil and Fatty Lumpkin and juxtaposing that with the historic uh, uh, meeting of Errol the Young and Faleroff, master, you know, father of horses, right? That's, uh, that, that is, that is also fantastic. Um, really cool, both for its similarities and its differences, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Fatty Lumpkin, kind of like Faleroff, father of horses, kind of like Chewbacca. Uh, excellent, excellent. Okay, all right. Well, I think that we're gonna um, we're gonna stop there for tonight. Not bad. We got through Fatty Lumpkin. That's good. And Tom's announcement that he's going with them um, to escort them to the edge of the downs. Uh, then next time, which again won't be next week, but the week after, we will hope to. Um, actually get uh, get to the road and on towards Bree here. So, uh, not too bad. What, ten slides? We can probably do ten slides. Finish up the chapter next time. Alright, very cool. Okay, so we're going to do our field trip. Um, so I'm going to say goodbye to the folks on Twitter. Thanks for joining me on Twitter, guys. And we are going to shift over here. Stretch out a little bit here. And... Uh, get ready for our field so for our field trip tonight we are going to go back to um, uh, we're going to go back to the North Downs so we've been doing the Barrow Downs for the last three sessions um, but I saw most of what I wanted to see on the Barrow Downs so uh, I want to go back to the North Downs where we had been exploring prior to that so should we do that stable to Esteldine, you think? Yeah, yeah, let's, let's, let's stable to Esteldine if we can here. Good evening, everyone. Lori here. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year to you. Any resolutions you want to share? <laughs> uh, eh, just the usual ones. <laughs> just the usual ones. Uh, the bit about um, slaughtering your enemies, seeing them driven before you, and hearing the lamentation of their women. Sort of yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's it. Same old, same old. Yeah. Go to the gym, <laughs> and yeah. then go to gym then, after the hearing the lamentation. Well, it really would make more sense to do it beforehand, or at least you'd be more likely, you know, to. Uh, yeah, the, the, I guess that would all be rendered hard if you weren't uh, at your best fitness. Exactly. So we're talking about singing and making for Tom Bombadil, right? Yes. It's like the 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 Kalevala song maker. So in theory, if Tom Bombadil made his boots, he would have to know the story of the history of boots, right? Right. Just like just like the history of of beer that we get in um, in the Kalevala, uh-huh. right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, you'd think. <laughs> I was just funny you're talking about singing. He sings boot his boots, not just you know, not to to 
to show that they are yellow by singing that they are yellow. But I'm just sitting there. It's like when my daughter was four, she had a pair of pink boots that she absolutely lived in. And she mm-hmm. would always tell everybody how much she loved her pink boots. Exactly. How she, they were constant. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Just to celebrate the pinkness of your boots, right? That's um, absolutely. That's uh, they were the vilest, smelliest, horrible, <laughs> hole-ridden boots in the world. But yeah. they were her prized possession. Yeah. And also, the thing about singing something into making is is just that that like making of reality. Making the boots means that he has always had boots. Right. 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 right, and it's, we get into that bit where English doesn't have enough tenses, which convinces me that Spanish people are either warlocks or time travelers, or they're the only ones with the tenses to deal with all of this. Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, the 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 connection with making and singing, I mean, I think is is uh, is clearly pretty important. Which is again another reason why I'm resistant to the idea of the making merely referring to like stuff that he produces with his hands right because although it's mm-hmm. possible that he does that and sings at the same time certainly he would sing at the same time as he did that um, but um, yeah yeah um, so anyway I um, but at the same time it doesn't seem I, 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 I don't think they're synonymous either you know, when he says my making, my singing, I don't think he means the same thing twice. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, but it implies he makes some things with his hands and he makes some things with the songs. It could do. But again, I'm, I mean, it would make sense not to go, you know, completely nuts when you have bees who are willing to give you honey just to get honey and make right. use it to make bread. Right, right. But, you know, as far as Goldberry's, you know, strange raiment and stuff like that, who knows? Right. Who knows? All right, I think most... Well, it's, you, you asked the same thing of the Valar. They're clothed, aren't they? Well, in bodies, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. Um, it's part of their aspect. <laughs> right, right. Okay. Um, okay, we got any more coming? I think we, we have a, like one or two more stragglers there, but I think we're... One or two more stragglers. I think we're good. I haven't okay. seen any, anybody new coming in here in a while, so... For those of you who are still coming into Esteldeen after us, we're just passing through and going out the other side of Esteldeen. We'll start shouting out the names of the places we're going through. So, so we've seen most of the North Downs now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've always been a fan of the North Downs. I really like all of the different concepts in the North Downs, both the stories and the history. We spent a lot of time talking about the history. Um... There's one last section of the North Downs that we haven't done yet. And that is up here in the northeast. Up there. Near the passes to Angmar. <laughs> Good thing we're on Gladden for this one. Yes. And needless to say, 
we're going to want to go and have a look at that gate. Because that's pretty awesome. Oh, man, I will never forget when Griffith saw that for the first time. I had never noticed that when I played this before, that one day that I was up here in the North Downs with Griffith, completely oh, floored man, by that. This is the place where it's like I totally abused being a hunter because I never actually like really found the real entrance around here. It got to the point where it was just too much trouble, so I'd always just buy a ride or port there. Right. Okay. I want to go to the road to Angmar here, but I don't want to go too straight. There are some other settlements up on the northern part. So here's some more of those giant kin, right? Those earth kin here. Oh, we got some. Yeah, we got some metalage. Yeah. And we talked about the. Oh wait, hang on. That guy's a. We want to stay away from that dude. That's a roving threat. Oh isn't yeah, it? yeah. Oh, 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 that's yeah. That's a. Yeah, roving... stay away from the green guy. He's far away yeah. from that dude. I just noticed yeah, him. Running. Yeah. Uh, I think he noticed us. Did he? I think he noticed us. In... Well, no, he's still walking. He's walking away. His little junior partner okay. here has noticed us, but... No, I think he's not. Okay, okay. good. Phew! A... Yeah, that guy's huge. Yeah. Boy, you know how many girls of Mythgard time... We were walking around trying to look for this guy... <laughs> <laughs> All right, you 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 were searching around. for him. Yeah, just traipsing around in the woods out here. Man, his maddened auroxes each have two hundred and thirty-one thousand hit points. Yikes! Yeah, this is yeah level level one hundred and five and up for those. Yikes! Okay. All right. Glad we missed him. Yeah, me too. And yeah, I I I have a bad habit of wandering around in areas where I am much higher level than they, you know, than the area, and just completely missing the roving threat. Like, just ignoring it like I'm ignoring all the other mobs and then getting stomped by it. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Okay. Um, exactly, Fourth Dauntless. That was just the, uh, that was just the quotation I had in mind. Towards danger, but neither too quickly nor too straight. Um, so, Okay. One, so what do we notice here on this approach up to the hills? We see some fortifications which look very Dunedain. They look, uh-huh. this looks just like Esteldine. Uh, yep, and true enough, there's the star, right? Oh, this one actually has more decoration than Esteldine. <laughs> it does. We've got the star, we've got the little branches, we've got the uh, scepter up in the keystones of the arches. So yes, less generic. It's because it's not concealed like Esteldine, you know. Esteldine being so cuddly hidden. Probably not built in a hurry. Exactly. Okay, now these pointy things. These are some sort of warding stone things, aren't they? Yeah, these are these are utilitarian in some way, aren't they? Uh, I don't know if they're utilitarian message. I mean, like they have a job, right? I um, mean, they—they're not just decorative. Whether whether 
well, whether they're effective or not. I mean, these particular ones are not enchanted like some of the other ones. Right. But presumably to these people, it's utilitarian to keep to ward off things. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 pointy. It looks dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a friendly rock. No. No. Though pretty. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely more artful than. than yeah. Oh, some of the Dunedain stuff around here. Right. Exactly. Someone paid attention to this one. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly, Tony. Me. That it's like a, this way to the hidden base, the the hidden rebel base. Um, <laughs> I turn back if I were you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So just to look at the map to see where we are, there there are two ways to get up to Angmar. Uh, there are these two passes up into the mountains where you wander in amongst the mountains, which turn out to be full of drakes and fireworms and things. Oh, yeah. And then you... And then there's this other pass here, which is the one that we're sort of heading towards, mostly because I wanted to see the denizens of these. Now, we didn't see any Rudarin symbol over there. We just saw a Dunedain symbol, and then we've got a second wall with what was an arch and might possibly have been a gate in here, and another tower up there with... So gosh, does this look like there was a... Older. There was a wall that came down? It's not made of the same color stone, right? This wall, compared nope. to the one down there. Um, it it's doesn't look... turret. Yeah, it doesn't look much more recent. It still ha- does have the Dunedain symbols on. Mm-hmm. We've got the scepter here. Um, probably the same people who made Esteldeen. You'd think that this was Rudarin, but we don't see any Rudarin symbols there. But maybe it just doesn't show up. Hey, it's the same. It's the Esteldeen music playing all of a sudden. Oh, yeah. That's interesting. Okay, and still... Wait, there it is. That's officially our first yeah. Rudarin symbol, right? Okay. So here on the... Looks I like can see nothing but grace. Yes. So here on the third layer of walls, clear Rudarin marks all over the place. Yeah, you can see that this place has been captured and recaptured and built and rebuilt yes. dozens of times. Yes. Okay, right, and we've got squatters in here, right? So we've got these guys, these hillmen, and they have set up a camp in here. This fortress is pretty cool looking. I mean, this was a highly defensible position. Both because of oh, the yeah. natural terrain and the different walls that they built up around here. And with also, this being that very narrow entrance into Angmar, it's definitely one of those. If you if you stand here, it's basically the equivalent of uh, waiting around in a doorway with a frying pan and waiting for everyone to walk through. Yeah, it's it's very it's very confined, very defensible. Um, I love this, you know, being set against the the cliff wall like this. Really cool. And well, yeah, it's slows your attacks to three directions instead of four. Yeah. And highly... Lots of Rudarin symbols here. 
And here yeah. we get the, the scepter flanked by the two sort of crowns and trees of Rudauer there. And yeah, no, Tony, you can't at all blame them for choosing this place to squat. If we look at these hillmen, this yeah. is the chieftain guy who's about to die, but he's got fancier armor. Oh, he just killed my horse, didn't he? That was, yeah, he did. That was unkind. Um... Real he's, quick. Yeah, he's got uh, some tattoos. Like metal sewn onto leather. Yeah, it does. It does. Um, oh, they put a new flag up over the old ruins there. Ooh, flag? Yeah. Hey, at the top. A, yeah, I didn't notice that. Let's look at the flag. I love banners. Actually, it looks a bit like the Rudar crown on there. But it's golden or something. It does look golden. Gosh, that's really interesting. And then it's got that like gothic arch thing below it. Yeah, almost like the gates itself. Yeah. Huh. Oh, I oh I didn't notice. There's the two figures in front of the gates too, but they don't. Figures. It's hard to tell. Yeah, there's two figures in front of the gate on each side, almost like uh. Almost like the, the Falls of Raros kind of thing, or you know, the the gates to the gates to the. Oh, the big gates! Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, the big gates. The big gates, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, the big yeah, gates. yeah. Sorry. Yeah, we'll come uh, to that. Sorry, I never noticed that before. I know I hadn't either. Oh man, that was what a day that was. Um, we'll look at that more in a second. Have they bricked up this door? It looks like. What is what? Maybe. What an odd thing maybe for them. Maybe it was on sound inside? What an odd thing for them maybe to have done. Uns- maybe it was all rotten or something. I wish I could get closer to this banner. We'll have to look around for other instances of that banner. Because that symbol, that yeah. does look like the Rudauran tree, but the proportions don't look right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wish it was right in front of us so we could get a better look at it. What it does kind of look like, though, is this keep. Mm-hmm. A little bit. Yeah, huh. kind of does. Oh, you notice the the wooden lean tunes against the brick too. Like they they had to improvise shelter here because they couldn't get in. Yeah, yeah. All those like uh, yeah, those those little shelters there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It really looks like they couldn't get in, or it was unusable, or falling apart. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe they were under siege and walled themselves in. Okay, see, now here we have them using the Rudaran symbol on their banner, or what is an extrapolation, at least, from the Rudaran symbol, right? Notice that it's lost the tree entirely. You know, Rudaur, it's the, the name of Rudaur refers to the trees, you know, to the forest. Um, <laughs> but... Um, and so that's why you know we see that we see the, you know the, the trees in the dark forest as as part of the symbol of of Rudar, but this symbol of the hillman here has like it retains the same kind of crown concept, but it it, it seems to have replaced the trees with what like lightning bolts essentially. It almost looks like flame. Yeah, flame or lightning or something like that. 
it looks really old too with all the holes in it yeah like maybe this is actually an artifact from the day yeah one wonders I don't know maybe it's just the iron crown do you get what those uh, fan shaped things are I mean, I know, uh, like, we looks, see them on their yeah, heads. Some of the metal decoration I've, I've seen on the helms. Yeah, exactly. Hats. They wear them on their hats. Um, but I, I've never really... Oh, no, 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 no. I think, the, I think the, the Duna... What was it? This looks like some, like, old Arnorian kind of armor thing on there. It's not... It's it's a good guy detail. I don't think this is an Angmar thing. I think it's a trophy. Maybe... That those could be trophies? Well, they also have skulls attached to them, so that does sort of suggest something it like that. It fits the theme. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's an element from a helmet of whom I don't know. It looks... It reminds me of Gondor, but I don't know why. I think I've seen them somewhere up here. I don't remember exactly where. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think whether it's something I've actually seen or if it's something I've seen in a pic- painting from Lord of the rings art that I don't remember. No, I've definitely seen it in game. There he goes. Hang on a second. Let's see. I want to look at this dude. Yeah, I don't see that symbol on him anywhere. I wanted to look at the dude. I was trying to protect everybody. All right. Okay. Don't kill this next guy. (laughs) I want to see the next dude. You can low level back off. Oop. Well, he, oh, see, he's got a hat. Let's see. Yeah, he, he had a totally different hat. This guy's got... He's got, like, a Cossack hat. Yeah. It's far yeah. around no. the outside with, like, a metal or hard leather sort of onion shape in the middle. Yeah. No, I don't see anything like that. And here are two more of those banners. I think these are their banners. Yeah, I think it's the Iron Crown. Remember, we did say it probably wasn't a coincidence that the Rudar and the Iron Crown were no, very yeah, similar. No, yeah, I don't think so at all. I don't think so at all. Um, that is, I don't think it's coincidental at all. All right, I'm trying to get myself into position because we should look at this gate. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Once the sky turns green, oh, you wait, know you're on. in the right place. Right. Let's, can I back off to where the sky is brighter? Yeah. We're Man, the first time I noticed that the sky turned green when you were in particularly evil places, that just freaked me out. <laughs> I think it was, what, in the Lone Lands or something. No, it was... The first time I noticed it was Lone Lands. Okay, there we are. Back in the there center. Can I get down out of the tall grass here? Oh, that, yeah, that grass is tall. Maybe okay. we need to get on the road to see it better. Yeah, I'm thinking so, because I want to angle up, but... Yeah, there the grass we go. is too tall. These guys... HOE needs to send a note. They need to trim their grass over here. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. There we go. That's beautiful. So you think there were two hands that possibly they were lifting both of their arms up and lifting that sword up? Well, see, it always did bother me. Because that certainly looks like a hand. And look, this hand has been broken off, right? Mm-hmm. 
So there's oh, her. She's got, they both got like claw hands too. They're not like yes, nice hand. Yes, he's got a huge big claw hand. She has a smaller claw hand, but it's They're like talons. Yeah, very talon-like. The really pointy shoulder guard and the really pointy helmet. His okay. yeah. s- spikes up here match the spikes of the sword. Just like those up there by the cross guard. Yeah, definitely a marriage of iron and stone here. Yeah, the bizarre proportions. I mean, like the sword, right? I mean, the hilt is like yeah. twice the size of the blade, right? It just, like, that sword doesn't make a lick of sense. Unless, unless it's supposed to be symbolic of something. Possibly. Like that's a crown in the middle instead of a an, another guard. I think what the, there's I think the guard is right on top of his hand, and then above that is an iron crown. Like it's been speared on the sword. Right. So the iron crown is being upheld by the blade of the sword. Yeah, by the sword. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah, that is the most useless sword ever. Exactly. I mean, even with that, okay, it's see, still relatively see, see useless. See the hood but... and see the, the dress and the hood that the lady is wearing? That looks so much like those busts that we saw back at the Bone Man's Tower in the Barrow Downs. Ah. Remember how I said she looked like, a, like an Agmarm witch and you couldn't place it? And yes. I'm, I'm seeing that hood and that dress... Well, the hood, the, see, the, the helmet is a difference, though. Yeah, the helmet is the different. The other one, we saw the stone face. Yes. Yes. This woman, she's got the iron helmet on top of the, the face mask. But if you put an iron face mask on that bust we saw, it would be identical. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, Boomful's wondering if the sword could be a parody of the Scepter of Anuminous. I don't know. Not the scepter, but maybe the sword itself, you know? Right, like a Lindell's sword? Yeah. Narsil? Yeah, like, hey, look at our sword that isn't broken. Even uh-huh. though even though my arm is, um, the woman would be saying. <laughs> I, think, I think some chunks got taken out of the arm. Yeah, apparently. Well, the other thing is, you look at just look at the valley there. How you'd get wind rushing rushing through that the entire time. It starts smoothing things out in weird places. It would. I agree. Um, that twenty three skidoo effect, you know. I think that the the ugliness of this, the ugliness and disproportion of these figures, mm-hmm. seems to me a really important element in this whole conception here um, mm-hmm. in particular I mean, like that left hand figure right that left hand figure is yeah. absurd I mean his arm has two elbows right I mean it bends in two different places and then I can't like even cat. right exactly and is that is that a thumb in the front I mean it like it just like the point well, like, is like most artists he doesn't know how actual warriors hold a sword <laughs> <laughs> fair, fair. 
fair enough. <laughs> I, I know you know that of which you speak here, but uh, right, right, certainly a, a problem. It's definitely an intentional, though. I mean, you could say the anatomy is weird, but it's intentional. You look at the artfulness of everything else around them, like the carved stone and the arches, and even the thing that was holding up the new flag. These are people who take time and consideration with art. This is not a society that has lost its arts. No, no. It's not crude. I mean, in the sense of being a a crude construction. I mean, you contrast this with, say, the tents, Right, the orcs, of the hillmen, or the orc statues, or the orc statues, exactly. Like the yeah, the with the with the red scrawl and stuff on them, or the goblin um, totems and things. Right, um, you know, you compare the compare the goblin totems to the fine detail of the Dunlending totems, for instance. Right. Mm-hmm. Also, uh, this would have taken a long time. The scale. Yeah, it's a colossal statue. Absolutely. You Thirty years, forty years, fifty years. You don't. You don't. You don't. Pretty crazy. You don't slap that together. Absolutely. No. Um. So, it is pretty amazing. But again, like weirdly proportioned. I agree that it seems to be deliberate. I mean, I think that that's. Um, I think it's ugly on purpose. I think it's disproportional on purpose. Um, but that itself is an interesting choice because why would this, so? Okay, so let's entertain this possibility that um, Tony is suggesting here. Maybe this was originally an Arnorian ruin that was recarved and repurposed by Angmar. Um, I can certainly imagine Tony would. F- I, I can easily make a story of that, right? That there was, if there were a colossal statue, and we know that, you know, the Numenorians were big into colossal statues. Um, if there were a colossal statue here, and they decided to like warp or twist it in some way, that would make sense. But I don't know. Because, see, here's my problem. I would think... The style of her dress isn't wrong. Yes. Yes, it is. I would think that if it were added on, it's the metal bits that would have been added. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, I could easily imagine the original stone, you know, the brown stone, as being part of the initial construction... But then, and and you can even see like the bit at the bottom, which looks especially weird. That's that's been cut away. That's that's you know part that's fallen there. Um, yeah, and maybe the arm was longer and thicker, and they sort of carved it into that weird curved shape. Possibly, that's conceivable. Uh, but it's not conceivable to me that the woman was ever just the stone, and they added this. St- I mean. Maybe they replaced her arms with different arms, like now with claw hand and spiky shoulder guard. Like it's conceivable that that's what they did, um, but uh, Stone Hood is throwing it off. Yeah, exactly. Why would you replace everything but the hood? Yeah, it seems too much of a piece to me. Um, also, her dress looks like the sorceress's dress that we get around here. Yes. Yes, it does. Um, yes, it does. Um, 
No, it seems to me more likely... Now, I know several people are talking about the actual identity of the statues, and, and uh, uh, I'm aware of that, um, that it would be Mordrith on the left and Amarthio on the right, um, which names aren't going to mean anything to you if you don't know the Lotro story, as, of course, it's, yeah, yeah. it's not... Uh, uh, th- these are not from the books, but I quite like the Mordrith and Amarthio stories both. Who? Um, and it or works symbolically. They could just be representatives of men of Angmar and women of Angmar. Right, right, conceivably. Um, <laughs> it's got kind of a, it's kind of an industrialist feel to it, like you know the the forties, fifties industrialist movement that you see a lot in New York right, and stuff. Like, it's really interesting. If it were a hammer instead of a sword that they were holding, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> She's holding up munitions for the factory. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. I can totally see that. Um, But no, that's why I was thinking about, could it be, you know, as Tony was suggesting, could it be an adaptation of of an earlier statue? I I don't think so. I agree with you about the style of her dress. Um, And even, even his body, even if we were to imagine that somehow the arm has been twisted around. But the question would still be why? If, if these statues represent as they do seem to represent, um, Mordorith, who is essentially the, like, king or regent of Angmar, and, uh, uh, and Amarthio, um, who was the, the champion and warlord of the Witch King's armies, um, though she fell a while back. Um, if it's them, why would they choose to depict them that way? It's almost like they're taking pride in how warped they are. Yes. But that doesn't make much sense. Not much sense. Uh, I still think that arm's bro- it's missing a chunk, though. It's definitely you look missing at the a chunk. Other, you look at the other sleeve, his sleeve is kind of puffy and loose. Oh, his arm. Loose. I thought you meant her arm. Yeah, his arm. Oh, so like this bit, like, yeah, yeah. so you think that he, he's missing a chunk out of his armpit? Might be. I mean, like I said, the wind comes by pretty thick through this, pretty fast and hard through this tunnel. And considering everything else that's missing from it, it might have just been worn away by erosion. Mm-hmm. It is possible that he was not looking twisted. And that the particular ravages of time on these two statues are like a sign, right? Are sort of symbolically significant. The way that he has been warped and twisted, uh, the way that his statue has been warped and twisted, and the way that hers has broken off between her shoulder and the arm that is holding the sword, right? Which rules Angmar. Um, you know, that she's still standing in the same posture yet without the physical, without the connection. Um, both of those things fit. And of course, I can't help but remember the statue of the, you know, the fallen statue of the king at uh, the crossroads in Athelion, right? And uh-huh. the symbolic significance <clears throat> that that... Um, that that was given, how the you know the king's head was knocked off and replaced with that mockery mm-hmm. orc head, um, but the uh, uh, the king's head had the crown of 
flowers again. By the way, I <clears throat> I still haven't. I've been to Hennetha Noon. Um, I got ported into Hennetha Noon, but I'm still I still haven't been able. I'm still not high enough level to wander about in Athelion. However, <laughs> that is my number one. Like I always have a list of like sites I want to see when I go to a new place in game that I've never been before, and uh, very high on my list, possibly. The, the very top of my list of sights to see in Athelion is the statue of the king at the crossroads. Like, I, I am... I am oh, I know. I'm, I'm just having so much fun rolling around Gondor and Minas Tirith right now. Just... Yeah. I, I, I want to leave. It's so much fun yes. to see how much thought was put into building this. I also really want to see in Athelion... Uh, my, the second thing on my list would be to see if I could find any pungent terebinth. Do you do I get to collect any pungent terraments? <laughs> oh please, oh please! I really, I really hope so. Um, but, but yes, you make a point. Just like the crossroads, this this is an indication of a power that has grown weak and careless of its history. Exactly, and the thing, like the the just as with the king at the the, the statue of the king at the crossroads, the way that. Uh, sort of the natural erosion over time of the statue is taken by Frodo and Sam to be symbolic, right? I mean, it's like, you know, the 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 allegorical hand of God at work, you know, in saying what's going on. And they take it as an omen, right? You know, the king, the king has a crown again. Um, and similarly, you could say the same here. I presume that, you know, none of the Angmarim who are around here are looking at these statues with much of an eye to the symbolism of the thing. Uh, or else they would probably not approve, but it seems like what time and erosion has done to these statues uh, is really sort of a, a foreboding of the uh, the end of their stories, which is not a happy ending uh, for Angmar, of course, fortunately. Um, Yay for us! <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, you can see it, and you know, if it was if they were powerful, they'd have time to put scaffolds up to fix everything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. All right. Well, so we are. One thing we don't see now. This is, of course, only an advanced camp of those hillmen that we met up there in the in the Arnorian ruins. We don't get to see uh, what kind of buildings those hillmen build when they're at home, uh, which is, I think, really fun. Um, mm-hmm. But we'll get there. So we will. Uh, uh, we will move on into the Angmarim camps here and uh, uh, look more at the because uh, the, the you know the, the the Angmarim humans are clearly different from the the, the hillmen like we got up up on the uh, up on the hill over there. Um, so I want to be looking at that as we get and and we'll go through the gate and into Angmar for next time, uh, so that we can begin to explore up in Angmar, and then we'll head... I figure by the time we're finished exploring Angmar in-game, then we'll be, uh... to Bree. <laughs> so that we can go back and do Bree. <laughs> wow. Uh, so that should be... That should work out well. Uh, but I should let everybody go. It's getting late now, so... Um, thanks, everybody, for joining me. Uh, remember, I, again, as I said, I'm, I'm going to be down in Texas next week. Um... But uh, I will be um, uh, looking forward to getting back with you guys in two weeks from tonight uh, on the, what will that be, the 16th of January. Um, 
and uh, and then we will uh, we should be on the go for several weeks in a row after that. So, thanks everybody for joining me. Um, uh, tune in again tomorrow night, 10 p.m., for uh, another episode of our Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy class, uh, as we will be uh, uh, we should be beginning to learn about um, uh, life, the universe, and everything, and the uh, the story of the of the of the number 42. So, um, we should be getting into some of that. I hope uh, tomorrow night. <laughs> So thanks, everybody, again right. for joining me, and I'll see you guys in a fortnight, and hopefully I'll get to meet some of you guys at TexMoot. So. All right. All right. Thanks, everybody. Good night. Thanks for joining me on this epic exploration of The Lord of the Rings and of Standing Stone's video adaptation of Tolkien's story. If you are having even half the fun I'm having on this journey, I hope you will consider supporting the project by donating at signumuniversity.org fund.